In John chapter 18, there's a great conversation and private interaction that Jesus has just hours before his death, before his crucifixion. This conversation that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 18, we're given the the details of this private conversation that Jesus has with Pilate. And, And Pilate asks Jesus, he says, so are you indeed the king of the Jews? And Jesus says to Pilate, you've said correctly that I'm a king. And for this, I've been born into the world. For this, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. And Jesus says to Pilate, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate replies with the famous words, what is truth? What is truth? This is a question that people have been asking for thousands of years. What is truth? And especially today in our postmodern culture where truth is viewed to be relative and you can pick your own truth and live how you want to live, this is a question I think we need to continually ask. What is truth? Because truth matters. And this morning we begin a new series, this Equip series that's part of the larger picture of this year of 2022 as we enter into a new vision for grace and a new mission for grace, the the vision that we have for you, for each and every person in this room and watching online, the vision we have for you is that when you stand before Jesus, that you will hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And to help you prepare for that day, the mission of this church is summarized in those three words, equip, engage, exalt. It is our mission to equip you with the truth so that you go out of here and you engage people with the gospel. And then we gather together as a body of Christ and we exalt him for who he is and for what he's been doing. Equip, engage, and exalt. And this morning begins this new sermon series on equip where I am going to go through for you what we believe as a church. It's kind of a unique sermon series. We're actually going to work through our doctrinal statement, what this church in 1954 said that we believe as the truth. And so I want you to grab uh, your bulletin, and in there you can see the outline. And this outline that we're going to work through today is the same basic outline that we're going to use for the next several weeks. As we move through this equip series, each and every week we're going to look at a text, we're going to look at a theology, and we're going to look at a takeaway. We're going to look at a particular passage of Scripture, a text that really summarizes the particular point in our doctrinal statement that we're emphasizing on that particular week. Then, number two, we're going to look at that item in our doctrinal statement itself, and we're going to explain, I'm going to explain to you what it is that we believe here at Grace. And then the third point each and every week is we're going to talk about the takeaway, the so what, what difference does it make? Why should I care that we have a doctrinal statement? What real impact does it have in my life? So that's the basic outline of every week. And notice this week we're going to take a look at that question, what is truth regarding Scripture? What is it that this church believes about the Bible? The first thing we're going to do is take a look at the text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 5. Then we're going to look at the theology, the point in our doctrinal statement, and what it has to say about Scripture. 
and then we'll talk about the takeaway, the so what, the who cares. So let's take a look first at the text. Grab your Bible and open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And you can see that the passage we're going to look at, we're going to look at in three parts. We're going to take a look at the foundation, the command, and the reason. The foundation of what Paul is saying here is the inspired scripture. The command that Paul then gives to Timothy is to preach the word. And the reason he gives this command is because people are going to walk away from the truth. So let's take a look first. Number one on your outline, A, the foundation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let me read for you verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, he writes this to Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pause right here. This is the foundation of what Paul is saying to Timothy here. And I want you to keep in mind as we work through this passage together that this is the last book that the Apostle Paul writes. He's in prison, and these are his last words to his protege, Timothy. These are the final thoughts, the final things that Paul has to say in this letter. And he says to Timothy, he lays out now the foundation of his final words. He says to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God. And I want you to notice that word, all. It's a little word, we might be tempted to jump over it and think it's not important, but it's actually very important. Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Not just certain parts, not just the parts that we like and we agree with, but all Scripture, Paul says, every word, is inspired by God. What this ultimately means is that the Bible is not just a good book, it's not just a book filled with advice or suggestions, but it is God's ultimate authority that these are the very words of God and it's completely trustworthy. Paul says all Scripture is inspired, he says, inspired by God. That word for inspired literally means God-breathed. It points to the fact that God himself is the source of this book. That when Paul sat down to write the letter of 2 Timothy or pick any book in the Bible, any of the 66 books, when the author sat down and when these books were written, God himself moved through that process. That God used the personalities, the vocabularies of each individual author, but he moved through that process and the final product the original manuscripts, the actual thing that Paul wrote is inspired, God-breathed. It is sourced in him. We'll talk more about this word inspiration here in a little bit. But Paul says to Timothy, he says, all scripture is inspired by God. And the second thing, notice he says, all scripture is profitable. So not only is the scripture inspired, God-breathed, it comes from him, but it's also very practical. It's useful, literally, profitable, beneficial. And then Paul lays out four specific ways that the Bible is beneficial, useful, profitable. He says it's profitable 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That word for teaching means that it focuses in on God's truth for us, his instruction for us. That what God wants us to know is recorded in this book. It's useful, profitable for teaching us about who God is and what he expects. The second way that the word of God is profitable is for reproof. The word for reproof really focuses in on correcting people in sin. If we want to know what holiness is and what sin is, the Bible is the place to which we turn. The third thing Paul lists out here and how the scripture is useful and profitable is for correction. I think correction here focuses in on specifically theological error, where what we believe isn't in line with what the Scripture says. It corrects us in our thinking. And then the fourth way that Paul lists out here that the Bible is useful or profitable or beneficial is in that phrase, training in righteousness. The word for training is used to describe the the raising up of children, the training of children, the instruction of children. And the word of God trains us as we mature in our faith, again, to know exactly who God is and what he expects of us as his people. Paul says, all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then notice the so what in verse 17, so that, here's the purpose So that the man of God or woman of God, the person of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is the ultimate end. Paul says, listen, this inspired word of God that's useful, that's beneficial, that's profitable, where it ultimately takes us is to a place of maturity. So that the person of God, the person who wants to know him and to live for him, will know exactly what that means. It's adequate. That you're therefore armed with the word of God in your hand. You're equipped for every good work. Those good works that God has prepared before us, the way we know what those good works works are is through his word. I mean, we could end right here. I mean, so much is said in, in these two verses alone about the sufficiency of scripture, about the importance of scripture. Thinking back to my years in seminary, um, one of my favorite professors was the second pastor of Grace Bible Church, Dr. Pentecost. And when I think about the sufficiency of Scripture, the image that immediately comes to mind are my classes that I had with Dr. Pentecost. If you don't know Dr. Pentecost, he taught at Dallas Seminary until he was 99 years old. He taught the same classes over and over and over again, literally for decades, and I had him towards the end of his teaching career, and I can't tell you the number of times he came to class after teaching the same class year after year after year after year after year. He would come to class with nothing but his Bible. He'd open it up, and he'd say, class, I have something for you. I woke up in the middle of the night. I I saw something in the Scripture that I've never seen before. And then he expound on some brilliant idea. And it was a perfect illustration to me of the sufficiency of Scripture, that we will never mine its depths, that it continually offers to us new insights into who God is, into who we are, 
into what God expects of us. So real practically, whether it's Dr. Pentecost, Timothy, Paul, you or me, one of the things we see here in this passage is that we have all that we need for a life of faith and obedience to him. And Paul lays out this foundation for Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God. It's sufficient. It has everything you need. And that then brings us to the second major point Paul has here, the command. Based on what Paul has just said about the scripture itself, he now issues a command to Timothy, what he wants Timothy to do in light of what scripture is. Notice chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What is the charge, the command that Paul gives to Timothy? Let me read this for you. He says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you. It's not a suggestion. It's not good advice. He charges Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. Again, follow Paul's thought process here. He's laid out for Timothy exactly what the Bible is. It's inspired of God. It came from him. It's profitable. It's sufficient. It has everything that Timothy needs, that Timothy's church needs. Therefore, the charge is preach the word. But I want you to notice all of the theological weight that the Apostle Paul throws behind that charge that we see in verse 2. Notice the weight that we see in verse 1. I mean, you could not get a more theologically charged statement than what you see there in chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. The word for preach means to proclaim. And in the first century, especially when a king or a dignitary came into a new area, there would be people who would go before him, travel right before him, announcing his arrival, proclaiming it in a loud and clear voice. And Paul says to Timothy, I want you to preach the word. I want you to proclaim loudly with a clear voice the very word of God, this inspired word of God, the foundation that he laid out before. Paul says, I want you to preach this word. And notice he tells Timothy when he is supposed to preach this word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Be ready. I don't care if it's convenient or inconvenient, if it's politically correct or not, if it's popular or not. It doesn't matter. No excuses. Timothy, you are to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's when he's to preach. Then he tells him how he is to preach. Notice this. Preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season. How? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy is to preach the word through reproof, through rebuke, and through exhortation. To reprove means to correct. To correct those who are thinking wrongly, who are living wrongly, he's to correct. 
through the word. To rebuke means specifically to rebuke those who are in sin, who are living in a way that's not in conformity to the scripture. And then to exhort is more positive. It's to encourage along the way those who are living and believing rightly. So Timothy is commanded to preach the word at all times, no excuses, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and then notice the last phrase, with great patience and instruction. With patience and instruction. And the truth is, confronting sin takes patience because transformation in my life and in your life often takes a long time. Thankfully, God is patient, and so Timothy was called to be patient as well. But it also takes careful instruction or solid teaching, being mindful that what the preacher does, he doesn't impose his opinions, his preferences, or even his political views, but he's to preach the very word of God. And again, this is an important lesson for you and for me, even if you don't get up here and preach on a Sunday morning, as you proclaim the word of God, it takes great patience and instruction. All patience with no instruction ultimately leads to overlooking and tolerating sin. But all instruction with no patience often leads to judgmentalism. And so I love that Paul lays out both that we need both patience and instruction as we proclaim the word of God. The third thing that I want to look at under number one on your outline is the why. Why? What difference does it make? Why is Paul commanding Timothy uh, in light of what scripture is to preach the word? Uh, Number one, C on your outline. Here we come to the reason. Why is this so important? Notice what Paul says. For or because... The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So why is this so important? Why in Paul's last letter, towards the end of this letter, is he laying out what Scripture is and laying out the charge, the command to Timothy to preach this word no matter what, no excuses, proclaim it? Here we see the reason. Paul says, because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Guess who the they is? I think it's people in the church. When they, Timothy, people in your church will not endure sound doctrine. When Christians, when people who claim to know the Lord will no longer endure or put up with sound doctrine. Instead, he says, They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers who tickle the ear, teachers who tell them what they want to hear, teachers who make them feel good about themselves every Sunday. 
But not you, Paul says to Timothy. You're to preach the word. Whether it's popular or not, convenient or not, politically correct or not, it doesn't matter. Again, notice Paul says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they, the people in their church, continuing, he says, will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The word for myth here, by the way, doesn't really mean fairy tales. Uh, It means ultimately unprofitable teaching. Teaching that doesn't really amount to anything. And Paul says to Timothy that even people in the church are just going to want to listen to sermons that ultimately don't produce any type of godliness in their life. It doesn't do that expected goal of reproof, rebuke, or exhortation. But people just want to have their ears tickled. But, verse 5, the contrast, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In contrast to the ways of the world, Paul says, Timothy, I want you to be sober in all things or to keep your head in all things, literally be self-controlled. Endure the hardship that's going to come in the ministry. He's also commanded to continue his work as an evangelist, the one who proclaims the good news and to ultimately fulfill the ministry that God has for him. Let's be honest. I mean, this, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this to Timothy, and this message is just as needed today, is it not? And when we think about what Paul is saying here, even that just simple phrase, do the work of an evangelist, let's be honest for a second and admit that the gospel is not a popular message, right? I mean, I don't like to hear, you don't like to hear, certainly the world does not like to hear the truth that we are sinners, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that what we deserve is God's wrath. This is not a popular message. This is not a way to win friends and influence people, right? Uh, But it's the truth. It's the foundation of what we believe. And Paul here is charging Timothy to not shy away from it. That's why week in and week out, no matter how unpopular it might be, we share the gospel here at Grace. That Whether you're here for the first time or you've been here since 1954, a message I want you to continually hear is that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are sinners. But the good news is that Jesus died for us. And that God offers to us as a gift freely by his grace, that gift of forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. And if you're here this morning or watching online and you've not considered that unpopular but true message, I want to give you the opportunity right where you are to simply trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we see here um, the text to summarize what Paul is commanding to Timothy. We see the foundation is the inspired word of God. We see the command there is to preach the word of God. And the reason is because people are going to turn away from the word of God. 
They're going to turn away from the truth. Again, it goes back to that question that Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And since 1954, when this church started, one of the founding principles of this church was to boldly stand on the truth of the Word of God. And so as we look at number two on your outline, I want to go through what it is specifically that we believe to be the truth about the Bible here at Grace Bible Church. Let's look at number two on your outline. Uh, First, on the back side of your outline, under your application questions, I've listed for you, quoted for you from our doctrinal statement and our bylaws, specifically what our statement of faith says about the Bible. Let me read that for you first. It's on the back side of your outline under application questions. Number one, equip the Holy Scriptures. We believe the Holy Scriptures to be the verbally inspired Word of God, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, and God-breathed. So what I want to do for the next few minutes to flip over on the other side of your outline under number two, I've listed a few major words there in our doctrinal statement. Now, a couple of things you're going to notice as I go through this. Number one, it's in a different order. I am presenting them to you in a different order. I'm presenting them to you in an order that I think makes more sense because our doctrinal statement is not inspired. I'm going to recommend a few changes to it. And then I've added a word that I think we need to add. But let's take a look. Uh, The five major words that I want us to consider and buckle up, we're going to go through these pretty fast. Inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. The first word that I've highlighted there is that word inspired. We see it here in the text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture, Paul says, is inspired. Again, literally that word means God-breathed. That God is the ultimate source of these 66 books. Uh, That when the Apostle Paul or whoever the biblical writer was, when they sat down and wrote these books, God used their own personality, their own uh, vocabulary, but the end product, what they actually wrote, ultimately came from God himself. That God worked through that process. Very practically, let me tell you what this word inspired means. It means that that what you hold in your hand is a translation of the very words of God. Now, you need to understand, and this is important, it is a translation of the very word of God. That God has spoken through the scriptures, and we are called ultimately to listen, to hear what he has to say. That's really what the word inspired means. The the second word and the third word we're going to take a look at together, that word infallible and the word inerrant. It's in a different order in our doctrinal statement, but I think this order makes more sense. Because the word of God is inspired, it is therefore infallible. Infallibility means incapable of error. Incapable of error. Infallibility, the third word, means without error. So notice the progression of thought. The word of God is inspired. They are the very words of God. 
And because God is trustworthy and reliable, his words are therefore incapable of error. And then the product that we have is without error. Does that make sense? So it starts with inspiration. Uh, The product is inspired. God inspired this product. What we have is therefore incapable of error and without error. Very practically, what this means is that it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. That the translation you have in your hands is a trustworthy, reliable witness to the very words of God. It's not capable of error. It is without error in the original manuscripts. And what you have is a very reliable copy and translation in your hands. The fourth major word that I want you to see here is that word authoritative. The word authoritative means that the word of God is the final authority in our life. And I know that sounds obvious. But what it means is that our final authority is not our preference, our political position, our denominational structure, our bylaws, our statement of faith, science, politics, reason, whatever. All of those things can help us understand things, but the final, ultimate authority is the very word of God itself. Nothing trumps the word of God, ultimately, is what this word means. It's authoritative. When the Bible says something, that's the end of the conversation, in other words. The fifth word that I've listed there, and the one that I would suggest we add, is sufficient. Notice again in chapter 3, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God has inspired this word. He's moved through this process, ultimately so that you and I are adequate, equipped, or sufficient for every good work. The word sufficiency, when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, it means we don't need to add anything else. We don't need a 67th book that study Bibles and commentaries and other things might help us gain understanding, but ultimately everything God wants us to know for a life of faith and obedience to him is contained in these 66 books. And truly we need nothing else. That's what the word sufficiency ultimately means. Now, let me be uh, honest about something for a second. Um, I've been told that our current doctrinal statement was written uh, by S. Lewis Johnson, the first pastor of Grace Bible Church, and he was a brilliant man. So with a little bit of fear and trepidation, I'm going to offer along the way a few ways I think we need to improve upon our doctrinal statement. I'm not claiming to be more intelligent than S. Lewis Johnson, and even S. Lewis Johnson himself later admitted that our doctrinal statement was good but not great. And over the course of this series, what I hope to do is to show you a few ways in which I think we as a church can move our doctrinal statement and improve it from good to great. To take a more clear position on what we truly believe as a church. So let me read for you my current thinking. It may get tweaked a little bit more along the way, but this is what I think I would like my proposal of our doctrinal statement to say about what we believe as a church about the Bible. Again, this is not inspired. Uh, I think it's good, but it's not inspired. 
We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures and that the Bible in the original manuscripts is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Of these 66 books, we have reliable copies that are our final and sufficient authority for faith and life. The Bible is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And that is my current proposal of what I think our statement of faith should say. The reason I'm going to make an issue of this every week, little tweaks and changes that I think we should make to our statement of faith, is because we do live, again, in a world uh, where things are getting crazy and it's difficult to discern truth from error. And I think what we all desperately need are more churches like Grace, we're not the only one, who are going to take a very firm position about what it is that we believe and make no apologies for it. Not be ashamed about it but to proudly say this is what we believe and why it ultimately matters. And so to talk about that a little bit more, let's take a look at number three on your outline, the takeaway, the so what. Uh, why would we work through our doctrinal statement as a church? Why would we update it from time to time? There's a couple problems that I want you to be aware of in terms of the takeaway. Number one, there's very clearly a problem in our culture, right? There's a problem in our world. Uh, more and more, I think, our world is moving away from the truth of Scripture. That more and more, our world is getting culturally chaotic. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of confusion. And it's hard for people to understand the difference between truth and error. Uh, we live in a post-Christian, post-modern society where truth is believed to be relative. And you are being led to believe that you can believe whatever you want to believe. And there's a new narrative even that you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as what you believe is not Christian, <laughs> right? I don't know if you, that's becoming more and more obvious to me that the world wants you to understand and accept that you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as what you believe is not Christian. Because if you come at me with that Christian judgmentalism nonsense, I'm not going to listen to it. And so there's definitely a cultural shift that has taken place that we need to be aware of. That's the first problem. The second problem, though, is one that we're seeing within churches themselves. Uh, years ago, there's a, uh, a man who wrote an article entitled, uh, The Nine Most Important Issues Facing the Evangelical Church. He did a lot of research, a lot of study, and he came up with the nine most important issues facing the evangelical church. And the number one thing he found was the rise of biblical illiteracy in the church, right? So not only is our world getting more and more crazy, more and more chaotic, but people in the church, not necessarily this church, but in churches are becoming more and more biblically illiterate. And so we're not able to combat the cultural chaos with the truth because we don't know the truth. And the, the real problem, really where the rubber meets the road in these two dilemmas is that it ultimately comes down to that issue of authority. We all have a basis of authority. For some, it's their experience or their feelings or their preferences or what their favorite pastor or politician has told them to believe. But since 1954, this church has said the ultimate authority 
is the word of God. And what I want to do is to double down on that commitment. To make it abundantly clear what it is we believe and why it's important. The world may continue to walk away. Other churches may continue to allow falsehood to enter in, but not us. I love what one scholar says, Bruce Scott. He says, in a world full of spiritual darkness, the word of God shines brightly. In an age where nothing is absolute and everything is relative, the Bible stands firm. At a time where right and wrong fluctuate as swiftly as shifting sand, the word of God abides immovable. And in a generation where milk toast morality permeates our society, the inerrant scriptures remain uncompromising, a rock of truth impervious to the winds of change. And I want us to double down on what it is we believe regarding the truth about this book. And as a way for you to take part in that, on the backside of your outline, I've given you a one thing for this week, a one application point. And I just want to ask you, uh, do you have a Bible reading or Bible study plan? If not, find one to which you could commit and start it. Listen, I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. I'm not going to be legalistic about this. I'm not going to tell you how many minutes a day or how many days a week you need to be in the Bible. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, But what I'm asking you is if you believe what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3, that this book is inspired by God, that it's profitable for you, that is the sufficient authority in your life to know God and to live for him, then the necessary question is, are you in it? Are you in it? Um, Real practically, I have a couple um, suggestions for you. Um, Just if you're looking for some resources, you probably know this, but it's a good reminder from time to time. They sell through the Bible in a year Bibles that are broken down day by day. And you open it up to whatever the day is, and it gives you readings from the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, or Proverbs. This is what I go through every day uh, with grace. I've missed a few here and there. Again, we're not legalistic about this, right? Uh, But this is what I go through. This is by my bedside. Um, If you are an accelerated learner, man, if you are just gung-ho and want to really get into it, the NIV has a really good through the Bible in 90 days. Man, if you just want to just rapid pace through it, uh, this is a good way to do it too. And, and you don't get bonus points with God, um, but you might get bonus points with me because this is, it's impressive if you actually do it. Um, the third thing, uh, this is a Ryrie Study Bible. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with the Ryrie Study Bible. There are other study Bibles out there. Uh, most of them have a daily reading schedule in here. My encouragement to you is if you believe that this truly is the word of God, a translation of the very words of God, um, I hope you have a plan, a strategy for implementing it. And by the way, I do want to mention, uh, in your bulletin, you may have noticed that on June the 26th, we have an upcoming Get to Know Grace class. Uh, get to know Grace class for the, the new people to our church. This is simply a way, uh, we're not going to ask you to sign on a dotted line or anything. If you just want to know more about what it is that we believe about our church, our ministries, the things that we offer, the get to, know, uh, get, get to know Grace class is the first step. It's on June the 26th. And from this point forward, everybody, every family who comes to a Get to Know Grace class is going to get a free Ryrie Study Bible. Um, If you have been to Get to Know Grace, if you're already a member and you want one of these, come see me and we can work out a deal, okay? Um, But um, to me, this is a firm 
declaration of what it is we believe here at Grace Bible Church. We are a Bible church, the Ryrie Study Bible. It's not perfect, it's not inspired, uh, but it's got solid theology in there, and uh, you would do well to have one on your shelf. And so we're going to give you one if you want one. Um, But the question ultimately is, what it really boils down to is that question that Pilate asked Jesus hours before his crucifixion, what is truth? What is truth? And how you answer that question will reveal basically everything about you. To close, I want to share with you some of my favorite words from John Wesley. He's got a book, a collection of his sermons, and in the introduction to that book, he says this. He says, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven and how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach that way. For this very end, he came down from heaven and he has written it in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book.